Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And over the last three years on this podcast, I have interviewed maybe 50, 60 people. And I have gone on interviews myself on other podcasts. And I've said interesting things that I have yet to say here. So I thought, you know, it might be kind of fun for me to be the interviewed guest. But I'm not going to interview myself. I mean, I'm a narcissist, but not that bad. And so I enlisted the help of Arlen Peters. Now, you might remember Arlen has been on the program several times with great celebrity gossip and dish. And he is a longtime entertainment reporter, CBS, a lot of the movie studios. He has interviewed thousands of actual celebrities. (laughs) And so now... He's going to interview me. Welcome, Arlen. Thank you, Ken. Pleasure to be here. All right. You get a little closer to the mic there, bud. All right. Okay. Um, now, I, I should say that I told Arlen he can ask me anything, and Arlen has not shown me the questions. So I have no idea what he's going to ask, and... Let's just sort of see where it goes. First of all, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. A pleasure, a pleasure. And you said about celebrities. Well, I consider you quite a celebrity. Oh, okay. And I've said this to you before. I really do consider you a renaissance man. And the reason being, I went through credits of yours, which are quite extensive. And I made a little note here of who Ken Levine is. Radio DJ... TV writer, TV series creator, TV producer, TV executive producer, TV script consultant, TV director, film writer, baseball play-by-play guy, playwright, theater director, and last but not least, a hell of a cartoonist. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'll be showing some of my cartoons on future episodes. No, Uh, people should understand and know, the people who listen to the podcast, the people who read your blog, that you really are an exceptional cartoonist, and and I, I wish that you would actually put some of that work. You know, I'll put some up on on, uh, Instagram. 
I, I I'll wish do you, that. Yeah. I wish you would. Okay. Because everyone out there, the man is very talented. Hollywood and Levine Instagram. So we're like two minutes into this thing, and I'm already plugging my Instagram. That's good. That's <laughs> that. All right. So now, again, uh, the tale of the tape. All right. So, again, going through going through your list of credits, very long list of credits, I'm just going to throw out some things so people can okay. get an idea again of the breadth of your work. Uh, first script was The Jeffersons, 1975. Uh, there's two episodes of The Tony Randall Show in 77. There's, of course, extensive MASH, 76 to 79, 54 episodes. There's After MASH, Yay. 83, <laughs> 83 <laughs> to 83 80 minutes to get to that. <laughs> uh, 17 episodes there. Uh, there, of course, is the Mary Tyler Moore show, uh, 13 episodes there. There's Tracy Ullman, there's The Simpsons. The very, very extensive resume on Cheers, 135 episodes of Cheers, uh, a show you created, Big Wave Daves, six episodes there, 38 episodes of Wings, uh, another show you created, Almost Perfect, 34 episodes there. There's Dharma and Greg, where you directed, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, where you directed, uh, Becker, 23 episodes there. Uh, it's All Relative, 12 episodes there. Frasier, 47 episodes. And then let's not forget a couple of movies here called Volunteers and Mannequin. Yeah. Well, I'm proud to know me. So I'm <laughs> proud to know you too. Okay. So anyway, I think... What? Am I a fraud? <laughs> no, I think we're done with this. <laughs> we just ran through the credits and we're done. No, no, I, I'm always curious when I do talk to writers... Uh, at what point in your life, how old were you, when you said, I want to be a writer? You know, probably, well, let me answer this in, in two parts. When I was in high school and I saw the Dick Van Dyke show and I saw that you could marry a beautiful woman like Laura Petrie if you were a comedy writer, that had a big impact on me especially since I can't throw a spiral since I'm, you know, terrible athlete. But that was always in the back of my mind. You know, I always knew I had a sense of humor and would try to utilize that to, you know, land some kind of profession. But originally I was in radio and there was like a big aha moment. I was all nights in San Bernardino at KMEN and I was making $650 a month, and I was doing midnight to six, six nights a week, and I was trying to be funny every break, and you figure there's only like 15 people out there listening, and six of them were night managers of 7-Eleven who were probably tied up in the back after a robbery. It's like, what am I doing? And I went to see the Woody Allen movie Sleeper came out, and it was a giant aha moment as I'm watching that movie and people around me are laughing and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? Because he's writing a, a movie and there's a story attached and there's characters and there are people laughing and you could actually go to the theater and hear people laugh at your material. No one laughs when, you know, you got a radio joke. I have no idea 
if it works, if anyone is laughing out there. Uh, so I thought, wow, this is really what I kind of want to do. I was tired of getting fired because I was kind of like Howard Stern before Howard Stern. And uh, I was a top 40 disc jockey. Most of the time I used the name Beaver Cleaver. And I was always on the other station. You know, there were always two stations in the market. Like in San Francisco, there was KFRC, which was the big station, and then KYA. I was on KYA. In uh, Detroit, there was CKLW, which was this huge station, and I was on WDRQ. And in San Diego, there was KCBQ, and I was on KSCA. So I was always on the other station. And what that meant was that the ratings would come out, and the station would suck, and there would always be upheaval, and somebody would hear my voice and go, oh, God, I don't want this idiot, and I'd get fired. So I was, like, bouncing around the country from station to station, and I kind of reached a point where I said, do I really want to do this for the next 30 years of my life? Do I really want to sit there five hours a night? And a tipping point was I was at KSEA in San Diego, and we used to have, it was a top 40 station, but we had what was called the power rotation, which was like the top five songs that played every 70 minutes because people want to hear the hits. And I would play Kung Fu Fighting like five times a night. (laughs) And that was it. That was it. It was like I, I would play Kung Fu Fighting, and then it would immediately go right to the top, and I would hear that, oh, da 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 like, oh, my God, <laughs> what am I doing with my life? So that's the long answer to your short question. All right. So now you decide, I want to write. You haven't really written a, a, a TV episode at this point. Right. So where does one start? I, I mean, today, in this day and age, if somebody wants to write, there are wonderful DVDs and things where you can go and, and look, read the extras or listen to the extras, and it's people will that. talk about how they came to, to write. We're, There's we're, podcasts like this. Right. We had no podcasts right. back then. We are talking 1974, 1975. And I had met my partner, David Isaacs, in the Army Reserves. And David at the time was working at ABC. And he was in a now long since obsolete department of film. He was shipping film cans around the country. And he and I decided we wanted to try writing. But neither of us knew anything about writing. And I had to go to a bookstore in Hollywood, and on the remainder table, this is Hollywood. Most bookstores on the remainder table, they're books. Was this Larry Edmonds' bookstore? No, this was Bennett's bookstore in Hollywood. It was across the street. I remember I I picked up a, a Mary Tyler Moore show, and I picked up an odd couple, and there was a guy, because there was also a lot of Hollywood memorabilia in the store. There was a guy who surgically had his ears done to look like a Vulcan. (laughs) Like Captain Spock, yeah. Uh So I'm thinking, okay, this is Hollywood. But I opened the script. I didn't even know what the format of a script was. You know, interior, Madison apartment, day. You know, uh, Oscar is playing poker. Felix enters. I I had no idea. And 
I had never taken a writing class at UCLA. Um, I had a friend who took a writing class and did very well in the writing class. And I read the script and wasn't that impressed. So I figured, nah, I don't know. So I never took a writing class. And David, I think, took one writing class at the University of Miami and got a D. So he was he was the professor. And what we really wanted to do initially was write movies. We wanted to write Sleeper and... Blazing Saddles came out. So was it always death? Was it always comedy? Was yes, that... oh, always comedy, always always comedy. But we figured since we don't know shit, it was probably better to try to learn how to do thirty pages of a television show as opposed to one hundred and twenty pages of a screenplay. So we sat down and we wrote a pilot. The first thing we ever wrote was a pilot about two kids who were roommates in a dorm in college, which was the sum total of our life experience. We didn't know what we were doing. Now, can I ask you this? Again, you hadn't written anything. Right. Was there a reason why you chose to write an original pilot as opposed to maybe an episode of a show that you watch and love, like Mary Tyler Moore? Yes, good question. The reason, we didn't know any better. (laughs) Okay. We didn't know any better. After we wrote our pilot, which never got anywhere, uh, I came upon a a TV writer named Frank Buxton. And Frank had written on The Odd Couple and a couple of other things. He read our pilot and said, well, there's some funny moments here, but guys, this is all over the place. We didn't know from an outline. We didn't know from anything. And he said, the way to break in is you have to write spec scripts from existing shows. So we went like, oh, okay. And that's when we decided, well, let's write a Mary Tyler Moore show because that was our favorite show. You have to remember, too, Arlen, that in this period, in the early 70s, It was a golden age of TV comedy. Yes. yes. You know, you had All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Maude and the Bob Newhart Show and Rhoda and Phyllis. Um, There were great, great shows. MASH was, was part of that collection, too. So it was an inspiring time to be writing television comedy. The only problem is... So we're going to try to write a Mary Tyler Moore show. We don't know the first thing about how to do it. So what we decided to do back in those days, back when the dinosaurs ruled the world, there was no DVRs. If you wanted to watch an episode of television that was on at 9 o'clock on Saturday night, you had to plant yourself in front of a television at 9 o'clock on uh, Saturday night. So fortunately for me, I did not have a girlfriend, okay? I, I had no <laughs> a lot of free time. A lot of free time. Yeah. I thought to myself, you know, if I was getting late, I'd never be a writer today. But uh, I, David and I would get together on Saturday nights, and we would watch the Mary Tyler Moore show, and I would hold a microphone up to the speaker. We had a cassette recorder. I would hold a microphone up to the speaker, and we would tape the show. And then we would go back and write an outline based on what we saw in the show. 
And we did that week after week after week until eventually we started finding the patterns and we started piecing together just what it was that that they were doing. And once we did that, then we came up with a pretty good outline and then we wrote our Mary Tyler Moore show, which was rejected by the Mary Tyler Moore show and rejected by Rhoda twice. My neighbor down the block uh, rejected my script. Yeah. And I, I see her today, Charlotte Brown, she's a lovely woman. And to this day, I'll go, Charlotte, just read it one more time. Really, just one more time. Yeah. What was Char- was Charlotte working on uh, in television? Charlotte, yeah, Charlotte Brown was the showrunner of Rhoda. Ah, at the time. Oh, yeah. so you got it right from the you should find the yeah, yeah. horse's mouth. Yeah, yeah no, she yeah. she rejected me, and and I would say to her kiddingly, "There's some good stuff in here. Read it one more time." You know, of course. Do you four remember years after the fact? Do you remember what the storyline was, or how you came up with that initial storyline? I remember the Mary story. I don't remember the Rhoda story. What was the Mary story? The Mary story, and this was like a good example of why they're professionals and we were amateurs. The Mary story was that Murray, who worked in the newsroom, I'm thinking to myself, God, there's probably a lot of people in this podcast who've never even heard of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Well, for those (laughs) of you who have, uh, Murray, who worked in the newsroom, was pissed off that he wasn't getting promoted or for whatever reason. And he was offered a job across town at another station. So he takes the station and kind of burns some bridges on his way out and then finds out that the other station is even worse. So he goes to Mary, which he helped him get his job back at WJM. And so Mary has to go to Lou Grant and try to get his job back. So it puts Mary in the center of the story, and it was, we thought, a a very good story. Well, that year, after we had written it, there was an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show where Murray got disgusted and wanted to leave. Here's the difference. In ours, he went to another station and then came back and told Mary all of the problems with the other station. Okay, so it was all just talk. It was all just, all the action took place off screen. Okay, what they did on the actual show, instead of having him go to work for a crosstown station, they had him work for Sue Ann. And you saw a scene where you're on the Happy Homemaker set and he is just her little bitch. And Mary and Lou see that, and it was a very funny scene. And it was like for us, oh, Eureka. That's the same general story, but much, much better. You said you just said something uh, uh, about people who might be listening to this who don't know the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Well, if people are listening to this and they're interested in writing and they're interested in comedy, my suggestion is those Mary Tyler Moore shows are available that is as good as it gets as far as comedy is Oh, absolutely. So if you want to learn comedy, get those, watch them over and over again, and learn from those. Yep. So. Yep. All right. So now let's 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 move ahead. Now, finally, how how much did you have to do as far as failed scripts and all of this before you hit gold? 
We were very lucky. We had that original pilot, which went nowhere. We wrote the Spec Mary. We wrote the Spec Rota. We wrote another pilot that didn't go anywhere. And we were in the process of outlining a Happy Days script. We were going to write a Happy Days next. And that's when folks who have listened to this podcast know this tale. My mom was playing golf one day with Gordon Mitchell, who is the story editor of the Jeffersons. And she said, oh, my son is a writer. And he's thinking, oh, God. But he said, okay, have him send me a script. And so I sent him the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and they really liked it. And they invited us in, and then we sold uh, Jeffersons. So it was four scripts before we sold something. Lucky. Yeah, very lucky, yeah. Lucky. What we had decided to do was carve out two years. And we figured we are just going to keep writing script after script after script. And somebody, somewhere in two years is going to recognize that there's something there. So we, like I said, it was going to be happy days. And then next we would write a mash and whatever. We would just continue to write spec scripts for two years. Well, again, I mentioned your your credits, some of them uh, at the beginning of this. And uh, there were a few here and a few there. But then we leap to MASH and 54 episodes of MASH. So that, I guess, was the thing that broke everything wide open. Oh, absolutely. Luck has so much to do with this. When we had our original pilot, we had this fly-by-night agent. And she was terrible and basically did nothing for us. And once we got the Jeffersons and we were in the Writers Guild, then actual agents were interested. And we had a couple of offers, a couple of offers from big agencies, but we decided, you know what, we're just going to be lost if we're at a big agency. You know, if they have big-time clients, they're not going to spend a lot of time calling story editors and trying to get us in to pitch Welcome Back Cotter or whatever. (laughs) And there were these two young women, Deborah Greenfield and Susie Gross, and they were at a small agency, the William Shuler Agency. Their big clients were actor Don DeFore. You're all going, who? Wow, wow. Don DeFore (laughs) and Ronnie Howard as an actor. At the tail end of his acting career, when he decided, I'm no longer going to be an actor, that's when they were uh, representing him. They moved up to uh, another agency. They moved up to an agency called Major Talent. And one of the clients at Major Talent was Gene Reynolds, who was the showrunner of MASH. Planets have to line up. This was the fifth season of MASH. For the first four seasons... Larry Gelbart was the showrunner and basically did all of the writing. Larry leaves after year four. So now, really, for the first time, there are openings for other writers. And Gene was looking to have a couple of young writers because there had never really been any young writers who had done MASH episodes. And so our agent... Gave him our script. He liked it. Gave him our Jeffersons, actually. Our draft of the Jeffersons. And he invited us to come in and pitch. And we 
we sold uh, an episode. It's interesting you say, did you guys always write comedy? Well, the first episode that we sold was the one where Hawkeye is temporarily blind. And Gene said, yeah, that's a really good story, but it's really kind of dramatic. Have you guys done any drama? We said, oh, oh, tons of drama. <laughs> College, wrote plays, Eugene O'Neill, this guy's Clifford Odets. Oh, yeah, we had never done any drama, but <laughs> we were not going to walk out of that office without an assignment. So we did that, and it took two weeks to write that episode. And I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again because it's kind of important for young writers. As we're writing the script, we kind of realize there's no place for Hawkeye to really express what he's going through. We had a lot of fun manic scenes where he's in OR, he's in the mess tent and that sort of thing. But what was he actually going through? And so we decided to write a speech. We decided to sit him down and do a speech. We figured, you know what? They can always just cut it if they don't want it. It's not like we're changing anything in the outline. We're just adding this half-page speech. It took us four days, Arlen, to write that speech to where we were happy with it. There must be 60 drafts. There are lines on cocktail napkins <laughs> and tissue paper and scraps, and we would just go back and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And so finally, we got it to where we were pleased. We turned in the script. They liked the script very much, and they were absolutely blown away by the speech. They were absolutely blown away by the speech. And the speech that Alan Alda delivers on the air is word for word our first draft of that speech. And that's really what kind of launched our career because once we turned in that script, Gene just kept feeding us other freelance MASH episodes to write. And then we got, as a result of MASH, we got into the Tony Randall show at MTM. We wrote a freelance script for them. They liked it well enough to put us on staff. So we're on staff of the Tony Randall show. Like a year before, we're out of work. We're on unemployment. And now we're on staff of the Tony Randall show. And at night, freelancing, we're writing MASH episodes. <laughs> Luck and timing. Yes. Very, 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 very important. important. Yeah. I, but also taking the time and making the effort to do something special. When you wrote that speech, obviously the producers, the, the, the Alan Alden speech, right. obviously the producers had to give you thumbs up on that. But what, do you recall Alda's, do you recall Alda's uh, uh, thoughts when he saw that on paper? You know, I don't know. We were there for the filming of it. And he thought it was a beautiful speech and, and thanked us. But no, I don't know. One great thing about Alan, there's so many great things about Alan, but, you know, Alan will put in the time and put in the work. And he didn't mind doing a long speech. Now, you bring up a good point because there's a lot of actors who they look and they go, oh, Christ, I got to memorize a page worth of shit. Who needs this? 
But Alan, and of course he was used to four years of Larry Gelbart, where it was just poetry. And Larry had long speeches. So he was game. He was game. He did not balk at all at learning this speech. I ask that only because Alan himself is a very good writer. Mm -hmm. And getting feedback from another very good writer uh, is very important to a fairly young writer oh, yeah. at that point. Oh, yeah. So, uh, okay. So, MASH obviously was your, your, your college. This was your, this was your writing, uh, learning writing uh, situation. Yes. Um, what, what do you think you got out of that that has been most important throughout your career, that MASH experience? Um, number one, storytelling. Gene Reynolds was a master at storytelling. And he left the year that we became the story editors. And he went on to Lou Grant. But he consulted one night a week. We would meet with uh, Gene one night a week at his house and we would go over outlines. And Gene was great at, you got to get to the story sooner. And uh, this is kind of repetitious. And you need to up the stakes here. And is there a, a more clever turn? Is there a more ingenious ending? That type of thing. And Gene could read an outline and go, you need this and you need this. This works, this works, this doesn't work. And we learned so much about storytelling from Gene Reynolds, which has served us well throughout the rest of our career. And I think the other thing we learned, and it's probably not so much in style anymore, but we always try to write with humanity. And we make things as funny as we can, but we try not to be mean-spirited. We want the audience to care about the characters we care about the the characters, and like I said, you know, I watch some of these shows now, and a lot of them are, you know, edgy and uh, mean spirited, and laughs come at putting people in humiliating circumstances and watching them squirm, and we just always learn to write with uh, with humanity in mind. I think about uh, MASH, again, a, a show took, that took place during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. Then you go down, and I'm looking at 135 episodes of Cheers that takes place in a bar. So the Well, there was a bar in Korea, too. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> but again, from a writing standpoint, from a writer's standpoint, your mindset is writing a Korean situation, things going on in a surgical unit there. And now you're embracing cheers. So how do you get prepared? How do you drink a lot? <laughs> no, how do you, uh, how do you approach 135 episodes of cheers after? Well, you do it one episode at a time. And fortunately, David and I were there from day one, but it was a different kind of a show. MASH was very unique. First of all, it was the only single camera show at the time. Everything else was multi-camera shot in front of a studio audience. And MASH dealt with war and 
the heart of the show was this existential dilemma where you had men who were dedicated to saving lives in a war situation where the goal was to kill as many people as possible. And so how do you cope with that? And they coped with humor most of the time, but it was a very unique situation. A lot of times people have come up to us and said, can you do the next MASH? And we go, no, MASH is unique. (laughs) You can't just put MASH in Vietnam or MASH in Afghanistan. It's very unique. So Cheers was more the standard relationship type of comedy. And I really mentally was ready to do that. I I love Cheers of all the series that I've been fortunate enough to be with. If I had to pick one that was my favorite, it would be Cheers. I love the characters. I love the situation. Being in a room with Glenn Charles and Les Charles and having Jim Burroughs direct all of the episodes and having such a stellar cast like Ted Danson and Shelley Long and, and everybody else. You know, I knew at the time that this was very special. And you hear stories of people saying, well, looking back, God, it was really a golden time. You know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but boy, things were really good back then. And I'm happy to say that at the time I recognized it. At the time I knew that, yeah, this is something really special. I remember one time sitting in a writing room and there was Glenn Charles, Les Charles, David Lloyd, and me and David. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, <laughs> wow, they're actually letting me in this room. It's like <laughs> sitting. They're actually pretending I'm a peer. It's like sitting in the original writer's room back in the Sid Caesar days when you yeah. had those legendary icons. Yeah, exactly. Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and Mel Tolkien and Neil Simon and you know, all those guys. And I was like, well, what am I doing here? It so sa- that was pretty cool. It sounds to me like the uh, experience of doing MASH was the two of you going off and doing your scripts as opposed to Cheers, it was a different writing experience. It was a group in a room doing that. Was that was that a uh, was that something different now? Uh, oh yeah, the the whole writing process was very different. Cheers was, like I say, done before a studio audience, and it's a different type of writing. There is more setup. There is more. Uh, you know, punchlines are much bigger in a multi-camera show because you're trying to get gales of laughter from the audience. When you're writing a single-camera show like MASH, we had all of these jokes inside of jokes and that type of thing. Um, So it wasn't necessarily set-up punchline, set-up punchline. So that took adjusting, but... We had done the Tony Randall show for MTM, which was the same type of thing. So it's not like we had to learn a new form. It's just, oh, okay, now we go back to this format. We have to write in this format. And one thing that Glenn and Les used to do was they would dictate their scripts to a secretary. They would have a secretary come in with a steno pad, and they would just dictate. 
MASH, we never did that. MASH, David and I sat with, we actually wrote in longhand, and we wrote it, and then we gave it to the secretaries to type up. But we got into that process of dictating scripts ourselves, and it was a huge leap forward, I think, in our development, because you're not staring at the page you're not trying to make one line perfect before you can go on to the next you know you <clears throat> excuse me you know you sometimes think in terms of the whole run and i would say to the secretary okay um here get this down and i would like pitch out very quickly like a page of dialogue and then we would go back and refine it and put in better jokes and that type of thing but the scripts then had a, a much greater flow, and we got used to dictating scripts. But the two of you would work alone, obviously, yes. working through the outline before you would sit down and uh, and kind of dictate uh, the the, right. the lines. Mm-hmm. And all of yeah, that. we always worked off an outline. You really have to in television because you have such a limited amount of time, and when NBC says your show has to come in 22 minutes and 5 seconds. It can't come in 23 minutes and 11 seconds. It can't come in 22 minutes and 47 seconds. It has to come in right on time. So you, you know, it's not like playwriting. Uh, okay, gee, this one is a 30-minute uh, <laughs> scene. Well, this one is a 40-minute scene. So what? In television, it's very regimented. So, yeah, we would work off of a very detailed outline that would even have suggested jokes and things in it. God, that guy never shuts up. Well, we are out of time, and I will have to continue this conversation next week because that verbose guest just kept talking and talking another 40 minutes. Our thanks to Arlen Peters for interviewing today's guest. Also, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine, I will... Write you back if you email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, and I will try to post some of my drawings so that you kind of get an idea of uh, what I do when I cartoon, because I can't really show you on the podcast. Now, can I? Anyway, thanks so much. Hopefully, you will subscribe and give this a five-star review, and I will see you next week, part two, the Arlen Peters interview with me. Hollywood and the fun.